When I ended up in art school, I thought I was going to do illustration. And then I dabbled a little bit, just like, oh, sculpture is really cool. And then that kind of Palestinian head was just like, what if you need to move? What do you need to do? So printmaking is on paper and it's easily movable, it's easily stored. And I just thought that's the thing I need to do because I need to be able to package everything into small things and then move on with it. Welcome to I Am An Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, one of the approximately 9 million foreign-born people living here. I left Australia around 15 years ago to study in the UK. One thing led to another, and I stayed. This new season of the podcast has been commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival. I'll be speaking with some of the artists whose work is programmed this year, and who also happen to be, you guessed it, immigrants. In this episode, I talk with Lena Namari. Lena is a Palestinian printmaker based in Scotland. Her work has been part of group and solo exhibitions within Scotland and in Europe more widely. Lena's installation, It Will Live, can be seen on the facade of the studio venue at the Edinburgh International Festival between August 12th and 27th. We talked about Lena's favourite Scottish words, the essential herbs and spices to fill your suitcase with before you leave Palestine, and the feeling, despite living here for decades, that being here still feels temporary. I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Lena Nammari, and I'm an immigrant. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. So from what I can gather, looking at your website and your work, being Palestinian is, is very central to your work. It feels like it's unavoidable. It's something you always continue to come back to. Absolutely. I'm unapologetically Palestinian. Everything I do reflects my Palestinianness, my experience as a Palestinian. It's just, why not? It defines my identity completely. And yes, I do live in the UK, but everybody has multiple identities and this is the most kind of prominent amongst them. You know, there's many others, you know, I'm a woman and I'm a woman of color and blah, blah, blah. But being Palestinian, I think, is essential to what I am. My name reflects my Palestinianness. There is no reason not to use it. Because I was thinking about how long you've been here now. Is it 1988 you arrived? Is that That's right? That's correct, yes. So I think you have the record among my guests for the longest time spent in the UK, yet it still feels like, yeah, Palestine has this kind of hold. I mean, would you say that that is home? It feels like home for you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, because my family are still there. And my identity comes from my family and my friends. And I'm still in touch with my school friends from primary school. And I'm in touch with them all the time. And thank you, social media, for keeping me in touch with people. But before that, we used to write letters to each other. I go home every year at least once. Yeah, home is Jerusalem and Palestine. And the UK always feels temporary, even after this long. I'm not being kind of like flagging up racist issues, but, you know, if I was white... I think it would feel slightly differently. But being a non-white person, it's difficult to call home somewhere where you get stared at all the time in the street and various little kind of racist comments that happen on the side and where do you come from is a constant issue. So you just say, well, it's not really home. And when I go home, I blend in completely. I am one of everybody. So that's why it's still home. 
Do you think that's, I mean, do you live in a small town in Scotland? No, I live in Edinburgh. You know, it's the capital city. It is the university town. It's full of um, multicultural people. We've got the festival, Fringe, you name it. And yet, you know, I live on Easter Road, which is the east side of Edinburgh. And it is predominantly white. And there's a football stadium around the corner. And it depends on who's playing who and whether I actually stay indoors or I go out in the streets. Because, you know, you'll attract comments because of just simply the way you look. Yeah. But thing is also, I'm not really shy in wearing orange and stripes and spots. You know, I'm not exactly being shy how I look. You know, it could be not just my color. It's just the color that I'm wearing kind of flags up. Look at that person walking down the street. But I have had little snide comments just passing people and you just go, hmm, okay. Do you find it's different when you go to other cities in the UK or is it just It's simply... less so in places like London. I've been to Manchester a couple of times. You feel a little bit more comfortable. But the thing is, I love Edinburgh. I mean, it's such a beautiful city. And I have made my name in the art world in Edinburgh and Scotland. And I feel very comfortable here. If anybody comes to Edinburgh, once you get here, it's really a hard city to leave. It's just lovely. It's just got everything in miniature. All the theatres and all the national galleries and all the institutions and the airport. It's also got the grandeur as well. And, you know, we've got a mountain in the middle of the city. It's fantastic. The pandemic. I just like, I'm so glad I lived here because you can be in the countryside in like five minutes. Yeah. Let's go back to your early life then. Which part of Palestine did you grow up in? I grew up in Ramallah, which is just outside Jerusalem. What age were you when you left Palestine? I was 18. Was that during the first intifada? That's correct, yeah. It was kind of the second year of the first intifada. So for listeners who might not be so clued up on the political situation that you were facing back then, and who knows how much it's changed, maybe not so much, can you just sort of explain a little bit about what the politics were like when you were 18? Ooh, uh, when I was 18. Right, the first Intifada started in 1987. And that was a popular uprising that happened in reaction to just an oppressive occupation, just to put it bluntly. We had 24-hour curfews. All the schools were closed. We had three-hour windows to go shopping or to do whatever necessary. So it was extremely oppressive. People got shot at, people were killed, people's houses were demolished, people were imprisoned without reason. And that was kind of my last year of school. And quite a lot of myself and my friends, you know, we didn't have our final year exams properly, for example. We didn't come out with proper certificates of um, education. I mean, I failed my final year exams for school because we never thought that we were going to sit exams and yet they made us sit prelim exams and then use them. And I failed in religion. I was horrified. <laughs> it was just like, oh, my God, what are we going to do now? So um, I was really lucky that I had a British passport so I could be sent abroad by the family. So how did you get your British passport? Did you have a family member? No, no, I was born in the UK. My dad was studying in the UK in the 1960s and 70s. My dad is an orthopedic surgeon. And he was doing his training and basically he was progressively going north. <laughs> he started in London, ended up in Middlesbrough type way, Edinburgh, Dundee, Perth. And so he progressively moved north. <laughs> and during that time, he had children. 
Um, and so did you say you were born in which part of the UK? I was born in Stockton-on-Tees. And back then, if you were born in the UK, you simply were entitled to a passport, weren't you? There was no restriction on, on who your parents might oh, be. There, there was restrictions. My dad had a moment of epiphany at, at some point, I think in 1986. He thought, maybe I should apply for passports for my children. So it was me, my sister and my brother. The three of us were born in the UK and he just got the notion to get us pa our passports since we were born in the UK. And literally the year after the immigration law changed in the UK that you had to, you couldn't automatically get a passport if you were born in the UK. So we were just really lucky that we managed to get ours without any problem. So I'm extremely grateful that my father applied for the passports when he did for all three of us. Because um, we lived in the UK until 1976, and then we moved home. So my dad relocated back to Jerusalem, and obviously with us, and you know, my education, schooling, all that kind of stuff was in Ramallah, Jerusalem. So I guess technically you're not really an immigrant. Technically not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> But you very right. much identify with the term. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, it's a document of travel. That's all it is. And so when you moved back to... Palestine. You obviously spent your formative years there as, as a young person. What images come to you when you think of that time? Oh, God. I mean, it's just like any childhood. You know, there was fun, pre-internet days, obviously, tons of boredom, climbing trees. Like any childhood in any country, in anywhere, there's mud, there's mosquitoes, there's scorpions. This is the fun stuff of being in the Middle East. You know, you just have other bugs to deal with and not just midges. And obviously, there's a lot of political issues. It's ingrained in you, the political situation, because you see it every day. I mean, when I was growing up, this is the pre-Oslo agreement period. You know, we were fully occupied. We had soldiers in the streets. You were constantly terrified. In Ramallah, you'd be in town buying sweets. You've escaped from school, as you do, to go and buy sweets from the shop. And then all of a sudden, you get the alarm of everybody saying the settlers are coming the settlers are coming and then you get shunted into a shop shutters down because the settlers were coming and they'll be shooting in the air and if anybody's out there you could get shot and that's kind of the growing up that you would have you're constantly on tension you're constantly bombarded with tear gas was just in the air at all times and it was a couple of years ago I went home for a visit and was on a bus at Kalandia checkpoint and I was just kind of in a daydream and a dwam as they say in, in Scottish and this smell was coming through the windows I was just like oh god this is such a nostalgic smell I wonder what it is and all of a sudden everybody was closing the windows in the bus because it was tear gas and I hadn't smelt that tear gas in ages I just like you know it was a nostalgic smell I was just like I wonder what that is <laughs> people were passing around onions that they had in their bags because that was the solution I was just like oh my god now that is definitely nostalgic the smell of onions and tear gas I was just like oh yeah I remember that that was such fun <laughs> So have you have you noticed any changes since you were that age and now? Oh God, huge changes. I mean, there's a um a lovely Palestinian writer called Marwan Barghouti, and he wrote a book based in the late 90s, and it's called I Saw Ramallah. And it's his trip back to Ramallah after years of being in exile. And that resonated hugely with him because he was trying to recognize places that he remembered, and they have changed so much. The thing is, because I go home every year, just about, I see the changes, but they're just so rapid. The area that I used to live in, 
was empty. There was no building behind where we were living. And all of a sudden, it's like a whole new city that's built behind there. And also the restrictions, for example, I can go and see my friends in Ramallah because I've got a British passport and I've got a Jerusalem ID card. So I can cross the checkpoints, but my friends from Ramallah cannot cross the checkpoints to come and see me in Jerusalem. So whenever I go home, usually you get, you get the visitors. They're supposed to come and greet me. I'm the visitor. And I have to go and visit them because they can't cross the checkpoints without having a permission. That restriction, that never used to be when I was growing up. We used to go Ramallah to Jerusalem. It's half an hour in the, in the bus or a, a service or like a communal taxi. And now it's impossible to do that. So like year on year, it's the change has been more and more restriction, more and more denial of basic freedoms. And so has anything changed for the positive? Because of things like, you know, the Oslo Agreement that happened, the, um, a fair bit of funding came through to cultural institutions. There's more galleries, there's more theatres in the various kind of parts of the West Bank, really, in particular. So there's a lot more of that going on. There's a lot more cultural life. But it's really hard to find the positives, actually, because all of that is still restricted. And even so, like things like some of the institutions get their funding cut because they're considered to be terrorist organizations. And you just think, but it's a theater or it's an arts institution. I just wondered because I guess the story of Palestine has been a tragic one for so long. People are obviously maintaining resilience and maintaining family bonds and friendship bonds and resisting and fighting back. But do you find with your friends and family when you go back that they are exhausted by it all? There is absolute exhaustion and a lot of frustration and also a lot of despondency because you can't move around. You have to have permission to leave. And if you leave, you don't know if you can come back. So there's a lot of fear. There's a lot more fear than it used to be. And there's a lot more fear that, you know, when we used to go out in demonstrations when we were kids, you're actually less likely to be killed when you were kids than now. So a lot of my friends who have got now teenage kids and late 20s or early 20s, they are absolutely terrified of what their daughters and sons would be doing because they could be shot, they could be killed, whereas we would be injured. And that was the difference between the occupation at the time in the 1980s. They would mainly shoot at your legs or your arms. You'd be injured. You might disappear in a prison for a little while and come back out again. But now it's very much, it's shoot to kill. And you don't know when that's going to happen. And things like, you know, social media, you put stuff on social media, you could disappear because you've said something on social media. We do believe in our cause. And, you know, where else are we going to go? This is the thing you just say, we're totally Palestinian, you know, sort of like our food reflects what we are. You know, we eat from our land and our food reflects what our land produces. Where else would you find Zatar? Where else you would find Zatmani? Where else would you find Akub, which is particular foods for our particular region? You know, it's, it's a no brainer that people will stay there. Just like, well, what else would I be? I'm not Lebanese and I'm not Jordanian and I'm not Egyptian. This is the thing about kind of feeling like, oh, you know, I, my suitcase when I go home and come back in, it is full of food, food that I cannot find here. And even if I did, it's not quite the same. I've got a Palestinian neighbour who makes this sage tea. 
But she gets the sage from Palestine and it's like completely different to the sage here. Because it's it's wild. So it's so much more pungent. And, you know, you buy the sage here. It's just like, what is this fluffy leaf? Ugh. We need the kind of the dried up kind of gnarly stuff that just has so much flavor. So, I mean, I just load my bag with the stuff and put it in the freezer and then take it in tiny little bits. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You've got it till the next visit. Yeah, exactly. Hello listeners, do make sure you go and see Lena's installation if you're at the festival this year. It's free and there's no need to book, so make a visit over to the studio venue at the most convenient time for you. Like all diligent podcasters, I've popped the relevant details in the show notes. Do remember to recommend this podcast to the people in your life who you think would enjoy it. Thanks so much. Back to the conversation. So can we go back to when you were um, in Palestine and a young person? Did your artistic journey start there? Oh, God, no. I did a bit of embroidery, which everybody did. I was going to be Nancy Drew at one point. I was going to be an archaeologist. I had no idea what I was going to do. And, you know, with all the kind of exams failing and all that kind of stuff, so you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I ended up studying nursing when I came to the UK. So I studied as a nurse, I worked as a nurse, and then I started my artistic career after that. Why nursing? Was nursing just a convenient thing to study at the time? Yeah, very much. Because at the time, it was um, training while working nursing. So you were working on the wards and going to college, learning for a small period of time and being paid. And I needed some kind of income because, again, the intifada, my dad didn't have a lot of money. Unfortunately, also, he decided to have lots of children. So he had lots of children to pay for in university. (laughs) I could see how dad was struggling financially. And if I could relieve him of me, then he could pay for the rest going to university. So that's how I ended up doing nursing, because it paid me to study. What do you remember of that time? Was it a happy time? Was it a challenging time? It was all of that. I was probably the only ethnic minority in my group of people that were studying. I had a fair bit of racism when I was doing my nurse training. People would make various comments about going back to where I came from. Even just like sometimes some a little simple comment of, oh, you speak English so well. And you just go, oh, fuck you. I enjoyed the nursing part of things because, you know, you're helping people, you're doing and a really important job. And I think sort of like nursing has helped me throughout my life just by being aware of other people's needs and observing kind of social norms and how to tackle them. You know, you see the whole gamut of society within a hospital ward or whatever. But it informed me quite a lot and it's humbled me quite a lot. Um, and it's made me better at communicating with people, I think. So I'm very grateful for my nurse training and my nursing subsequently. But it just wasn't for me because part of my kind of problem is I don't like authority very well. And I don't like that things have to be done in a certain way because this is how it should be done in a certain way. And you just go, but I don't agree. And I'm not very ambitious. And if you are going to continue with the nursing, you have to go up the grades and you have to become more managerial as you go up. And I actually really like the nursing care. I like the patient care. I like the bedside stuff. But if you were going to continue with the nursing, you can't just stick at that level. 
So it's kind of time to just like, well, this is really not what I want to do. I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to be somebody in charge. I actually like all the stuff that you do as a nurse, the basic, basic stuff. So it was time just to see what else I wanted to do. Being in an institutional environment, I guess, as well, which is obvious for artists, you know, not the greatest. No, and you always feel kind of slightly odd. You just say, why do I feel so odd? You just say, uh, you know, sort of like I was taking lots of photographs at the time and doing little drawings. I was When I was making my Christmas cards, it was always hand-drawn and... You just think, well, maybe I could do something with that and end up doing evening classes. And then from evening classes, I ended up doing my Scottish higher art. And then from the Scottish higher art, I did another evening class. And then, you know, it just progressed from there. And how did you land on printmaking as a kind of special area for you? Um, when I ended up in art school, I thought I was going to do illustration. And then I dabbled a little bit, just like, oh, sculpture is really cool. And then that kind of Palestinian head was just like, what if you need to move? What do you need to do? So printmaking is on paper and it's easily movable, it's easily stored. And I just thought that's the thing I need to do because I need to be able to package everything into small things and then move on with it. And that's one of the main reasons I actually chose printmaking because it's portable. I mean, I love printmaking, obviously. It's just like I breathe it. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. What is the magic of it for you? Oh, it's just there's so many things to explore. Everything is possible. You know, your your fingerprints are prints. You sit there and you put your fingers on a piece of paper. You've left your little oils on that piece of paper that will last a long time. Everything's a print. And I think that possibility is amazing. And printmaking tends to be quite a social activity. You go to a workshop and you print with other people. You learn from other people. You pass on your knowledge and it again, brings in that kind of nurse part of me. It's just, there's a lot of technical things. There's a lot of care. There's a lot of sociability. I just love chatting to folk. And because it's anybody can do it. So you don't have to have huge amount of skills. Once you've learned a technique, you can hone it to perfection. So anybody who can draw or not draw can print, which is so much more social. And it's very flexible. And there's workshops all over the world that you can go and visit and you can just step in and you can use the facility. And that's wonderful. I mean, it sounds like you do get back to Palestine a lot, which is great. But when you're here, what do you miss most? Oh, it's the family and it smells and food. Uh, of course, there's tons to miss. What I don't miss is the restrictions and the fact, you know, I'm actually quite anonymous here as well. When I go home, I am my dad's daughter. So... You are constantly vigilant that you do not want to embarrass the family. We've got our own social restrictions. It is a very patriarchal society. Here, I am able to do anything I want to do at the end of the day. I have got an enormous amount of freedom. I don't have to tell anybody anything. I can just get on with stuff. And that is an incalculable bonus of living here in the UK. And that's why you end up staying because that amount of freedom, you just don't get it at home. Whether there's an occupation or not, we are an extremely patriarchal society. It's cultural. Things do shift. We do have very strong women in Palestinian societies. Women feature hugely in everyday life. But at the same time, you know, you are still your father's daughter. You are still protected by the men, all of that kind of stuff. So 
I do miss my dad, obviously, hugely, and my brother and my sister and my, you know, the family and all of that. I miss the food so much. I miss things like the azan, you know, the call to prayer. Especially I miss that on a Sunday because you get the adhan and you get the church bells and they both go at the same time. And it's such an incredible sound that you just can't quite, just like, oh, this, yeah, I'm home. Definitely I'm home. And just go, I love this. This is great. Yes. So your parents both alive? My mum died when I was younger, and which is one of the reasons I, we ended up going home. And she's actually buried in Edinburgh. She died from, um, she had a, uh, she asphyxiated. She had a really bad cough and she just died. She plugged her ear hole. It's like a tragic accident. So my dad finished his training and then we went home because you know, he needed assistance with the three kids that he had. He couldn't cope. He couldn't go. No, of course not. It was a really difficult time. You know, this is early 70s. You know, there was not much help. So my dad remarried. So I've got a stepmom who brought us up, who's quite a phenomenal human being, actually. She's quite phenomenal. And do you know much about your mum? I know a little bits about her. My, my dad was kind of quite reticent about talking about her because I think it was so tragic. I mean, I, I know that I look like her. Apparently, I behave like her. And it's this thing about nature and nurture type thing. Apparently, I've got a lot of her nature. According to some of my uncles, I'm very much like her in lots of ways. And she was coming from an artistic background as well. So her one of her sisters, one of my aunts, was also an artist. She studied in Baghdad. She studied fine art in the 1960s. So I must have picked up some of that from genetically from her. But you don't remember your mother, it sounds like. No, I was four when she died. And how many are you, your siblings? There's five of us. So I've got a half-brother, half-sister, and then three from my mum. And so your dad just thought, right, I just need to go back where I can get some support and help. Yeah, they're very much, yeah. Because my grandfather was still alive and obviously my dad's aunt. And then my dad met my mum. My stepmom, we call her mum because she brought us up. So he met her, they got married, they've had two children since. So they're the two that are still at home. So the three of us with British passports have dispersed around the world. And the ones that have got the Jordanian-Palestinian situation, they've got no ID as such. They're at home. So my younger sister, Lama, I have to write her a letter of invitation for every time she applies for a visa, every time she wants to come. So sometimes she gets her visas, sometimes she doesn't get her visas. And it's infuriating because a really good friend from school, Samar, she's fabulous. I love Samar. She applied to a couple of years ago to come to the UK for Christmas time. She's like, oh, my God, this would be so cool. I mean, she didn't. And she was told that she had too much money in her bank account. She has a good job. Why shouldn't she have too much money in her bank account? She, she was just like, fine, I'll apply for a Schengen. And she went to Paris. Of course, she went and enjoyed herself in Paris because the British were just like, you have too much why can't a Palestinian have a lot of money in their bank account? They thought it was kind of money laundering or somebody put money in. Terrorism threat or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Palestinians have got a different kind of category altogether. So did you say your mother's buried in Edinburgh? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. And do you visit? Um, not very often. I just, I don't believe she's there. I think she's, she's part of the atoms of the world. So every now and again, you know, I just go and check out her gravestone. Me and my, she didn't have a, a gravestone, so my brother... And myself and Huda, my older sister, we put some money together to give her, put a gravestone. Because when she died, my dad didn't have enough money to put a gravestone on. So we managed to do that a few years ago. So I just go and check and see if it's still up and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I don't believe in an afterlife and I don't believe that she's there. I mean, she's, she's everywhere. You can see sort of like where I'm pointing, that's actually an embroidery of hers she did this lovely, like, um, I think they're blue tits or something. So she's there. She's on my wall. 
that's that's mum. Yeah. You've sort of described already what you appreciate about being here um, in terms of the freedoms that you have. Is there anything particularly about Scotland that you value? Uh, the air, the light. I do love the Scottish accent. You've got one yourself now. I know, just a little bit. <laughs> when I get tired, because I grew up speaking American English, because that's the teachers that we had in school, I go down the American route when I'm tired. My brain just stops filtering that kind of Scottishness. The pronouncing of the T's, I like keeping that. In the American English, you drop your T's, so it'll be Scottish, and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. So it's Scottish. And I do like the Scottish culture. I like Scottish language, poetry. I like Scotland. I think people are quite socialist in their way of thinking, which fits me completely because I'm very much a leftist socialist way of thinking as well. And do you have any favourite Scottish terms or phrases or words? Oh, God, there's tons. I mean, I like the word gallus, which means somebody who's got a lot of courage, but in a rude kind of way. That's <laughs> Just, a good word. So good. I mean, I love the word I, but I wouldn't use it because it feels false, wrong from my mouth. But I love hearing people saying I. I mean, I like the description of the very fine rain that happens in Scotland a lot, it's called smir, S-M-I-R. That's a specific type of rain that gets you wet and ruins your hair if you've got curly hair because it's that really fine, misty rain and it's smir and you just go, oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> or har, H-A-A-R, which is the mist that comes off the sea on a coast and it's particularly on the east coast of Scotland. And it always ruins a beautiful summer's day. You get the har that just rolls off the sea. And you just go, God damn it, the har's come in. And of course I'm going to use that because it's so specific to East Coast Scotland. It's brilliant. Yeah, I've adopted a few things. I mean, I haven't lived in Scotland, but in England and in London, the one that I use a lot is bollocks. I just love that word. I just think it's great. It just sums up so many things, yeah. <laughs> you know. I have to say, I've learned to swear beautifully. And uh, I have to thank the Scots for that. So I've modified my language because this is a podcast, but normally it's littered in various nasty words. <laughs> <laughs> You're a proud Scottish resident there. So uh, your friends and family back in Palestine, there's a lot of um, exhaustion of like, okay, how much longer must we endure this? I mean, apart from that, are they well? Are they keeping okay? Yeah, I'm very lucky that my group of friends are kind of very educated and they've got decent jobs. And um, so they are, you know, they have their everyday issues. You know, it's not always about politics. Politics does infiltrate on everything. But at the same time, it's just like, who's going to do the homework and who's going to clean the house? So, you know, it's all these domestic issues happen everywhere at any time. But they're all well. They're all working. We've got a nice little group chat. I've got a friend, a really good friend from school that lives in Gaza. And she's the one that we're all constantly concerned about. And so we've got a nice little group chat with her just to make sure, you know, are you alive? Are you OK? Sending voice messages. And again, it's just 20 years ago when you used to phone abroad, it used to be prohibitively expensive. Oh, you remember the phone cards? That we just see, see the numbers just going, da -da 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 -da, done. And it would it'd be a huge part of my expenditure, yeah. Mm, completely. I mean, you used to kind of just save up money to get a phone card. And now it's just like it's WhatsApp and Messenger and FaceTime and everybody's on something that you can call at any time. And oh my God, that makes such a difference. And I'm just so grateful that we've got the interweb for everybody to connect with. 
for good or evil, but there's a lot of good in it. Yeah. So again, for listeners who may not be uh, so clued up on what's going on in Gaza, can you just briefly explain? Well, Gaza, the Israelis moved out of Gaza, technically, in the mid-2000s. They moved all their settlements out, but in the meantime, they enclosed the Gaza area, which is about a 40-mile square kind of piece of land that is basically surrounded and nobody can get in or out. It is run by Hamas at the moment. Hamas won the elections, but they were not acknowledged by the international community. So they ended up running Gaza and the West Bank is run by Mahmoud Abbas. So the Gaza situation, they have been incarcerated. It's an open air prison. They cannot get out without permission of the occupiers, which is Israel. And on the other side, the Egyptians who listen to what Israel says. You can't get out unless you've got permission to go for medical treatment, for education. You have to have everything brought in, things like cement you can't bring in, fertilizer you can't bring in. You can't get your produce out. It's a nasty situation that they're in. And yet they're the ones that are always at fault for provoking the Israeli Air Force, the Israeli authorities into bombing them. I mean, last year I was in tears. I was just crying my eyes out the whole time because you don't know whether Fatoum was going to be alive or not every single day. So she would send us a text in the morning saying, we have survived the night. And she was saying, please don't send us too many messages because we've got no electricity. How do you charge your phones when you've got no electricity? I mean, it's just, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. The thing is, I remember growing up in the 1970s and 80s, we used to go to Gaza Beach because that was beautiful, sandy beaches. It's beautiful. Gaza and the Gaza Strip, it's a beautiful part of the world. It's an ancient culture. It's where the Philistines were. They keep on finding archaeology in the sea and in the ground. You've got Greek sculptures just popping up all of a sudden. You know, this, this is an ancient trade route, you know, sort of historically, you just think, this is where Egypt and, the, and Asia, this is where they were, was Gaza. And it's a really important part of the world. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk then about your um, show. What's happening? <laughs> What's happening at the Edinburgh International Festival? What can people see of yours? Well, what the plan is, it's like part of the, I think it's called the Studio Theatre. It's at the back of the Festival Theatre. It's a big glass building that's got lots of horizontals that are going along. So what they're doing is taking my one, my piece, it's called It Will Live, and they're going to make it much larger, like enormous, and stick it on the glass or in between the glass. We're not quite sure. So it'll be seen by passers-by. And it's a particular house in Ramallah that I have loved all my life because I used to go past it going to school and back again. It's a beautiful, old, typical Ramallah house because Ramallah gets snow. So in, traditionally, they would um, build pitched roofs so that the snow can fall and it comes off the roof. So it's kind of like red tiled. And as the years have gone on, a lot of these older houses have been demolished because they take up a large chunk of land. They have built like big buildings instead. And, you know, the character of Ramallah has changed over the years to a point where, you know, I was talking about Marwan Barouti's book, I Saw Ramallah. A lot of the character of Ramallah is disappearing. And a lot of it is big buildings. It used to be much greener. It used to have just trees everywhere. And a lot of these things have disappeared just because there's a, a need for density of housing. And I can understand the point, but don't lose our heritage. 
And I've been terrified that this house is going to disappear. And I've been photographing it since 1999. Every time I go home, I go and check to see, is the house still there? And so I've taken this photograph. So finally, the last time I was there was in 2017. I took a photograph and there was scaffolding. So I was just like, oh, my God, it's going to live. Oh, my God, the relief. And I didn't know how what was going to happen to it. So now it's actually being used as a guest house for the municipality. So they have kept this house and it's going to be used for visitors. And it's retained its beautiful architecture. And it's just a beautiful thing. And I was just really, I was so excited that it's going to live. And so like my connection with home, you know, it's all these little connections sometimes. Once they disappear, you just, your, your connections with home loosen and loosen and loosen. And now it just feels like my connection is still there. And it's the little things. And this house is just beautiful. It's a lovely thing. Everything I make, there's something amiss, something that really should be better. Or, But there's always a little bit of hope at the end. I'm going to be doing a PhD in Dundee. But the theme of it is Hanin. Hanin is an Arabic Palestinian word. Hanin is the word that describes nostalgia and homesickness. It's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. So that's kind of the theme of what I'm going to be doing my PhD on is the concept of Hanin in fine art, because it is everywhere in Palestine. You've got the Hanin for loss that you don't even know that you have lost or things that have been lost that never can be returned. So this idea of Hanin, I think it just covers everything that I do. Absolutely. It could be just the little things. It's like the house that I'm talking about or the porcelain pieces that I made for my last exhibition. It's Hanin for a culture that's disappearing. And we all have that. We all look back nostalgically, whether you're from Scotland or you're from Canada, anywhere. You're always missing little bits of home. It doesn't matter where home is. You could have just moved three streets away. You've got that thing that you're longing for. And that's Hanin. This is the beauty of art, whether it's literature, theatre, art, physical art. It reflects society and reflects the life that we live. And I think it's extremely important to acknowledge that sort of we as artists in the bigger kind of sense of art, we're the recorders of history, real history, actually, as opposed to the historians that change according to who is in power and who's won what war. The artists are the ones that reflect what's going on in society. And you always end up looking at art, whether it's the cave art or it's stuff that you find in the Sahara's desert. It's the artists that actually you always go back to and see what happened at that time. So I think it's really important to just continue doing that. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Lovely to meet you. And um... oh, Thank you very much. Enjoy the spring. Don't stay indoors. Get outside. It's sunny out there. You read my mind. I'm looking out at the sun because I live right near a river. I'm going to go for a run now. Get some vitamin D. <laughs> All right, lovely to meet you. Lovely and, um, to meet you too. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Bye. A thousand thank yous to Lena for the great chat and for teaching me some excellent Scottish vocabulary. I hope all of you heading to the festival manage to avoid the smur and have a wonderful time. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is an Ice and Fire theatre production commissioned by the Edinburgh International Festival 2022. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.